0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As many of you know as long time listeners, each week I discuss with a guest the Parashah, the weekly portion of Torah, the five books of Moses, sometimes known as the Pentateuch, uh, on our podcast recording show. This week, the Torah portion that is read in Jewish congregations throughout the world is known as Bishalach. It continues the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt. It begins with Exodus 13, 17, and continues with Exodus 17. Let me give you an overview before we look at a few specifics of the portion. Soon after allowing the children of Israel to depart from Egypt, Pharaoh chases after them to force their return. The Israelites find themselves trapped between Pharaoh's armies and the sea, sometimes known as the Red Sea, sometimes known as the Sea of Reeds. God tells Moses to raise his staff over the water, and the sea splits to allow the Israelites to pass through. And then closes over the pursuing Egyptians. Moses and the children of Israel sing a song known as Shirata Yam, the song of the sea, or the song of Miriam in praise and gratitude to God. Following this episode, the people are in the wilderness and they suffer from thirst and hunger and repeatedly complain to Moses and Aaron. The text tells us that God miraculously sweetens the bitter waters of Marah, and later has Moses bring forth water from a rock by striking it with his staff. He causes that which is known as manna to rain down from the heavens before dawn each morning and quails to appear in the Israelite camp each evening. The children of Israel are instructed to gather a double portion of manna on Friday as none will descend on Shabbat, the divinely decreed day of rest as enunciated in the first chapter of Genesis. Some disobey and go out to gather manna on the seventh day and find nothing. Aaron preserves a small quantity of manna in a container as testimony to God's power for future generations. In Riphidim, which is a location, the people are attacked by the Amalekites, who are defeated by Moses' prayer and an army raised by Joshua. It is a parasha that goes to great narrative length to inform the reader of the power of God and the ongoing challenges to Moses and the God of Israel following the Exodus. With me this morning to discuss the parasha is Rabbi Brooks Sussman of Freehold, New Jersey, Rabbi Sussman is Rabbi Emeritus of Cole Am Congregation. He is also the adjunct professor at Brookdale College in New Jersey. Served as rabbi at Temple Israel Lawrence, New York, and Temple Shari Emmett in Freehold, New Jersey. Rabbi Sussman, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish
1: Fact. Thank you very much, my friend. It is good to be back, and it is an honor being with you and those of you who are listening on the uh, radio.
0: Well, it is a pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, chat with you again and allow you to share your insights with my listeners. This morning, I think we want to begin with discussing the crossing of the Red Sea, Yom Suf. And, of course, this is a significant uh, story in the uh, episode, epic of the Israelites' exodus. So, what calls out to you initially about this story?
1: Well, not only physically, but you also reference the word God. And those of us who are reading an English text we more often than see see the words the Lord God as though they are one and the same. The ten plagues and this Shiratayam, this song of the sea, really explains how the Lord became God. Because the word God is a plural noun in Hebrew, it's Elohim, and it's defined as God's plural with a small g. The Lord is this individual who introduced himself, I'm using the masculine, to Moses, because in the Bible, names are descriptive of personalities. And so the Lord is a four-letter Hebrew root. yud hey vav hey. is essentially, and bear with me now, those of us who are of a certain vintage will understand this yihaveve is the third masculine singular future tense of the to be verb essentially god the lord's name is he will be or as we also see in the book of exodus when first being introduced to moses ehyeh asher ehyeh he will be whom he will be Or he will become whom he will be. For those who
0: um, don't recognize that verse immediately, we find it in the story of the burning bush, when Moses asks God, How shall who shall I say has sent me? Tell me your name. And God uh Referring as Rabbi Sussman did to Yud Hey Vav Hey, references himself in this manner. For those of you who are not Hebrew scholars, Yud Hey Vav Hey are four Hebrew letters that do not appear in the text with vocalization, um, and so we are unclear how to pronounce it. Uh, mid. 19th and 20th century Protestant scholars in Europe decided that the closest we could get would be Yahweh, sometimes pronounced as Jehovah. In Jewish tradition, because this name doesn't appear with vowels and tradition said that the name was uh, unpronounceable, um, usually is pronounced as Adonai, but of course it isn't written with that kind of uh, vowels and consonants. So you've helped us understand that we are introduced to Elohim and then to Adonai. So
1: Adonai or Yahweh or Jehovah in this Torah portion is going to prove that he is not just one of the Elohim, one of the gods, he becomes Ha-Elohim, the God. Because if we've looked at the plague narrative, we have two other players in this. We have Ramses, who is the Pharaoh of Egypt. And we have Moses. Now, more often than not, Moses is defined as coming from Masha, being drawn up as he was drawn up from the bulrushes by Bat-Yam, the daughter of Pharaoh. But Masas in Egyptian means son of, just as my name is Baruch Ben Yisrael, Baruch the son of Israel. Masas would be the son of, just as Ramses is the son of Ra, the sun god. So what we are going to have here is a cosmic battle between Jehovah, Yahweh, and Ra, the sun god. The players in it will be Moses and Ramses. And if we look at the Hebrew of the plague narrative, in the first five plagues, we have Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then from 6 on through 10, it is Pharaoh's heart was hardened by Yahweh, by Jehovah, by Adonai. And so basically what we are being told is that Yahweh is now becoming ha-Elohim, the Elohim, besting the sun god, therefore stronger than the god of the mightiest nation in the then known world, Egypt.
0: So for those who are listening and might be um, somewhat confused, I would remind you that in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses, the text is very comfortable identifying that there are other gods in the universe Be side Ha Elohim or yud heh jehovah The most obvious example of the text's comfort level is in the dibrot, known as the Ten Commandments, which begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. You shall have no other gods— in place of me. The text is very clear. The Israelites are commanded to an exclusive relationship with Adonai, recognizing that there are other gods in the knowledge of the text. One other example that I'm sure Rabbi Sussman would agree with, and that is when Moses comes to Pharaoh, He says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve their God. And in Hebrew, the word serve is also the word for worship, to pray to. And so we've made a transition from worshiping, working, serving Pharaoh to working, worshiping, serving a different God. So you're right that this is a uh, U-W-W-E conflict. Uh, exactly. Between... And the conflict
1: is between Yahweh and Ra. Good. Without costume. Without costume. <laughs> so so you'll, you'll Brenner will have to step aside. That's right. Because this is a cosmic conflict. Exactly. And who is going to be the Elohe Elohim, the God of gods. And what a then,
0: wonderful way to describe that, the God of gods, the number one.
1: Yes, everyone else is going to become a mere pretender to the throne because Yahweh is going to create the denouement, the conclusion of the proof of God's strength, in the crossing of the Yamsuf, Suf, the Red Sea, because what we have, and no one talks about it, what we have is truly the 11th plague. Why does Pharaoh follow? Why does does Pharaoh go after these ex-slaves? It's because he has lost his free will. Yahweh is demanding his death, and Pharaoh dies in the Red Sea, along with his minions and his chariot and his charioteers and his horses. And then we have, Mi chamocha be'elim a'yaveh, who is like you among the gods. There is none else. This is a cosmic battle. And if you look at the text in the Hebrew Torah, you will see essentially the Red Sea parting and the children of Israel going through because the Hebrew will be on the right and the left serving as the walls of water. And then there's Hebrew just in the center. So it's not an odd syriatum, one after the other, the normal text that we see everywhere else. It's even more than poetry. It is showing you exactly the story itself.
0: So I want to ask you a question because you said that Pharaoh um, is compelled to act um, and he loses his free will. But I'm wondering if there's also the possibility that um, Pharaoh acts out of his free will without considering the consequences um, and that God doesn't, Adonai, Yahweh, doesn't force Pharaoh to act, but Pharaoh acts not recognizing the essential battle
1: that he has lost. That comes, in my my reading of this, that comes in the first five plagues and the response to it. Pharaoh had the choice throughout to free the children of Israel after 430 years of servitude. And he chose not to. He relied on his Elohim, his God, Ra, to take care of him. And finally, at the conclusion of the fifth, all bets were off. Ra, a Pharaoh, loses his choice of free will, and now control is given over completely under the control of Yahweh, who controls not only the choice or lack of choice of Pharaoh, he also controls Ra, the Elohim, the God, the sun God, the protector of Egypt.
0: So Rabbi, if we follow that train of thought that during the first five plagues, Pharaoh makes an independent decision not to cede his godly power to the power of Israel's God. And in the next five plagues, Israel's God um, maneuvers Pharaoh into this cosmic battle at the sea. Do you have a way to explain to our listeners why the average Egyptian had to be included in the suffering? Why couldn't we go from Plague 5 to Plague 10 and then to the splitting of the Red Sea? There's a lot of human suffering in the intermediate plagues.
1: But for four hundred and thirty years there was a lot of human suffering on the of the children of Israel by the Egyptian people. They were the ones who benefited from the servitude of the Hebrews, of the Abiru, of the outsider, of the slave of the slaves. They could have rebelled against the choice. They could have uh, called upon Pharaoh to let these enslaved free so that they could serve their own God. Is it collective guilt? That becomes the biggest question. Was Pharaoh responsible and all the people of Israel just had to follow their king without question? Right. So
0: that's an interesting question. Are they collaborators with uh,
1: Pharaoh are they facilitators? Are they enablers? their silence is their is there being complicit?
0: And so one would say that that certainly repeats itself throughout history.
1: If we look at the history, if we look at the history of the Civil War, the hatred of the southerners of uh, Sherman and his march, through and his destruction, basic destruction, of the entire civilization of the antebellum South in the United States during the war between the states is one and the same example that war is terrible, it is horrible, and it
0: is all out. And you're suggesting that Sherman saw the citizens of the South as enablers of slavery, of enablers of the secession, and therefore they were to be uh, included in the punishment that was meted out to their leaders. Um,
1: and I suppose that one- well, Remember, it was, only, it was only the army of Pharaoh that perished in the sea. It wasn't the average Joe and Susie who were still working their fields and remained at home. It was the followers of Pharaoh who followed him, thinking that they would re-enslave these fellows.
0: But the plagues, and I don't want to... uh, The plagues
1: plagues happened to everyone.
0: Right. True. Um, But you're saying that in spite of the pain that it causes us from afar to see it, we need to recognize that Susie and Joe were the beneficiaries of Israelite slavery, as are uh, numerous parts of population in the 20th century or the medieval age, the beneficiaries of genocides, um, and that their facilitation and enabling of this by silence um, isn't enough to uh, protect them.
1: We can learn from the words of Abraham Joshua Heschel of Blessed Memory, some are guilty, all are responsible.
0: Great. So that fits beautifully. Heschel, of course, was speaking out of his wisdom of uh, the civil rights movement and his understanding of the Hebrew prophets. But um, that's really a wonderful quotation in
1: relationship to the sea, the story of Yom Suf. Now there's another, if I may, there is what's known as Midrash, which is an extrapolation of the text. We have no idea. It's always a guesstimate. And the question becomes, they're now at the shore of the sea. And was Yahweh a handmaiden? Moses says, okay, split the sea, God. We're waiting for you. Free us, free us. The question becomes they had to do something on their own; they had to do something themselves, and so the rabbinic story is the people didn't want to go. God said, Moses says to God, "Open, split the water, let us go." God says, "Have them walk up to their to their knees. Huh. they walk up to the knees. nothing happened. Have them walk up to their very shoulders. Nothing happens. Have them walk up to just below their nostrils." Only when all the children of Israel entered the sea up to their very nostrils did the sea split for them to walk on dry land. The story being, we cannot demand of God, we cannot expect God to do for us until we do all that we can do for ourselves.
0: I thought when you introduced the notion of Midrash that you are going to share with our story given what we had been discussing the rabbinic midrash the rabbinic commentary on the death of all the egyptians uh, pharaoh's army Um, the rabbis tell us that uh, after the uh, destruction of pharaoh's army and the Israelites are singing the song of the sea, as you quoted Micha Mocha, who is like God, strongest, most powerful. Uh, according to this legend, uh, God chastises the Israelites for celebrating the destruction of humanity, God's creatures, God's creative uh, product. And God says, there is no reason for you to celebrate. This may have been necessary, but it's not cause for celebration, the destruction of these individuals. And so both uh, stories
1: exist simultaneously. Uh, Not not only that, but you, you lead to what for me becomes such an important symbol of those of us who live in the United States and recognize the history of the Puritans who left uh, the the strictures of Europe to come to the quote-unquote new world. Those of us who are from the United States recognize the symbol of the United States of America. It is the eagle uh, with, in, in its talons, is the Olive branch of peace is also arrows, but that wasn't the initial idea of uh, Benjamin Franklin or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson. For them, the symbol of this new found world, this new land, this land of freedom was to be Moses standing on a rock, staff upheld, The waters part of the children of Israel walking through on dry land because for these creators of the early United States, it was the United States or the Western Hemisphere, which signified the children of Israel, signified as the children of Israel leaving servitude and creating this new world in the promised land. And so the Western Hemisphere, North America was seen as the fulfillment of God's quote, unquote, Old Testament promise to leave the old ways behind and create a new covenant, a new breed, a new world, a new hope.
0: Well, our American listeners are probably aware of how often the early uh, founders spoke about America as the new Jerusalem and even though there were anomalies in terms of uh, uh, avoiding the issue of slavery in the founding documents, um, they saw themselves as providing a haven for those who were oppressed, like the Israelites. Um, and it's good to remind us of that, that this story of freedom— is not only understood as a story of uh, two deities fighting for supremacy, but two ideas with regard to the governance of human beings. The uh, older perspective of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, in which there's a hierarchy based on race, and the notion of um, the Israelites and the Tanakh, that there is a hierarchy based on faith, not necessarily genetics or national origin. Uh, and certainly that's one of the lessons of this week's parashah. In the 90 seconds or so that's left to us, I'm wondering if you want to make a concluding comment about the parashah.
1: This parasha and this manumission, this freedom, is necessary to prove the power of this God of Israel because the next time we see them, notwithstanding the, the trouble with the... Beating the rock is when they come to Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, and receive the Ten Commandments, the basis of humanity itself, this new covenant, and they respond, Naasev Nishma, we shall do because we now understand, we will hearken. And so it becomes each individual's pledge and promise to covenant himself or herself, not necessarily to God, but to the commandments that create society.
0: Well, that in and of itself is worthy of a conversation for that Torah portion, but unfortunately, we're out of time. (laughs) I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Brooke Sussman of Freehold, New Jersey, for uh, offering us some great and unusual insight into the parashah. This is Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. You can find a podcast of our conversation on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day.